If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As a plant-based cheese company, Daya has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Daya cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Ex-Troop was a World War II commando unit with a difference. It was made up almost entirely of German and Austrian Jews who'd fled to Britain and were desperate to take the fight to the Nazis. Their story is told by Dr Leah Garrett in her new book, Ex Troop, which reveals how they became one of Britain's most potent weapons in the drive to liberate Western Europe. Leah spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. The men who ended up being a part of X Troop, how did they come to Britain in the first place? So the men who became part of X Troop, uh, nearly all of them came on kinder transport. And they were uh, the trains 
set up primarily by the Quakers to rescue Jewish kids from Austria and from Germany. So the parents of the commandos all had to make probably the worst uh, decision anyone ever had to make, which was to send their children away to get them to safety when it was very clear what the Nazis were going to do to the Jews. So the majority of the ex-troopers arrived in their young teens by themselves, no family, no connections of any type, and had to make their way through uh, the UK sort of day by day trying to figure out what to do next. They were all deeply traumatized because they had all lost their families and their homes and their cities and their communities. And they came here by themselves because their parents made these decisions that they had to do this in order to make sure that their children survived. So that the majority of them came alone in their teens by themselves to get away from the Nazi menace. And despite the fact that they were fleeing the Nazis, is it fair to say that they weren't all necessarily treated that well by the British when they arrived? Well, at first they actually were treated quite well because the Quakers and other communities took care of them. Um, But what ended up happening was when war was declared with the Germans, the British um, had had this new mandate that Churchill famously called Collar the Lot. And there was a a fear amongst the uh, Brits that there were these sort of hidden enemies in their population. And immediately there was this internship set up for all of the Germans and Austrians who'd come to the UK. So they were actually interned. So most of the commandos, you know, they had been here a year or two beforehand, were by themselves, were working on farms or doing whatever they could do to survive. Many of them actually had started university. Some were at Oxford, some were at Cambridge. Often they were the brilliant children of sort of... um, high cultural figures, and then they were all interned. The camps ranged from the OK in the UK on the Isle of Man to the absolutely and utterly horrific uh, in Australia. So a number of them were actually put on this ship to Australia, these young traumatized Jews put on the ship to Australia to be interned there. And on that ship itself, it's a, it's a pretty much one of the worst stories of World War II that nobody knows about that I write about in my book, The Ship, The Denera. Um, the British crew were deeply anti-Semitic and, and basically tortured them, made them run barefooted over glass, uh, didn't let them have water or sunlight for weeks on end. And in fact, in writing this book, I was able to interview uh, two commandos who were still alive And one of them, when I interviewed him, he still shook with fury about his transport on that ship uh, when he was treated so cruelly. Then they were sent to these different internment camps and the war started. And eventually they were given the option that they could leave the internment camps to join uh, the military, but it was only in the Pioneer Corps, which was a hard labor corps in which the men couldn't see any frontline battle. And, And to a man, they were itching and desperate to get back to Germany and Austria and fight the Nazis face to face. So they went into the Pioneer Corps uh, for months on end, and every minute of every hour was spent trying to convince the people in charge that these guys should be put on the front lines to fight the Nazis themselves because they knew what it meant. They had lost their families and homes. So it was at this point, finally, when Churchill recognized that there was this incredible community of angry Germans and Austrian Jews who are all fluent in the language, that they started to think of this idea of creating this very special commando unit. 
And from what you were saying, the these commandos must have had quite ambivalent views towards their British hosts from the way they'd been treated. Did, did that continue into the war or did, or did that change as they ended up fighting for the British? Well, it was actually, it was ambivalent is the word, but once the, the men were chosen to be in this top secret commando unit, all of the men had to take on, this is, I mean, every story in this story I find, when I was writing the book, I kept thinking, oh my God, this should be its own book. No, 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 this should be its own book. No, this should be its own book. I mean, the story of the internment was extraordinary and I didn't know that this had happened to these German Jews. And then when when it's decided that they're going to create this top secret commando unit called X-Troop, all of these German and Austrian Jews are told that they were, they're basically given 15 minutes in which they had to uh, create a new British persona with a British name, uh, you know, Church of England dog tags, and they had to become this new British fighter because they, the, the Brits knew that if any of these men were captured, they would be killed immediately as Jews, as commandos, as ex-Germans, and so on and so forth. So all of them, I mean, these are young men, they're 17, 18 years old, and they all suddenly find themselves having to pretend to be British. And so part of the ambivalence and strangeness of the whole journey that these men underwent was the fact that they took on these personas as Brits. And after the war, the vast majority of them, in fact, all but two, kept their British names, raised their kids. Many of the kids never knew their parents were Jewish, didn't know the story of their dads. But one of them said at the end of the war, um, as the war was closing, uh, Ian Harris, who was one of the sort of bravest and most mighty of the Jewish commandos, said, he did a quote um, that I put in the book, which was something like, to the British, I, I, I am always grateful. They gave me a gun. They gave me some grenades. And they said, you just get on and you do your job. And for this, I'm eternally grateful. So the ambivalence on one hand was because they had been interred. And after the war, many of them really struggled to get naturalized. But the positive aspect outweighed for the majority of them the negative aspect, which was they were allowed to go back to Germany and Austria and fight and kill Nazis. And they were deeply grateful for that. So it was very ambivalent. Um, and very mixed, but overall, I would actually say um, quite positive. So why were these men put together as ex-troop, as a specific commando unit? Why weren't they just dispersed more broadly into the British forces? Okay, that's a great question. So what, what the sort of secret thing that these men had was twofold. One was fluency in German. They were all completely fluent in German. Two was they had been raised there. They knew the country in, inside and out. So they would serve really well as commandos in case there were secret operations that had to happen and so on and so forth. Actually, and a third point is that they burned with a fury to get back. This was a personal war for all of them, and it made them different from other people. So when X Troop was formed, the idea was that there would be this special unit of German speakers. Um, it didn't have to be that they were Jewish. It just worked out that almost every single one of them was Jewish. And they would be put in a larger unit called Ten Commando. And Ten Commando would comprise other groups like a Polish unit um, and, and, and so on and so forth. And the, the, the German Jews, because they were all pretending to be British, were, were called the British unit, which was Three Commando or X Troop. So the idea was that with their fluency, with their anger, with their capabilities, they could become very important in the war effort. And, and the head of 10 Commando quickly realized that these men were extraordinary. And in fact, so extraordinary that they made a decision right after the war started 
that the men would never be able to fight together as one unit because they were too valuable. They would be the ones who would be sent at the very tip of the spear to go in to get in top secret information if Nazis were captured or Germans were captured to interrogate them on the spot, which was really important rather than taking them back to the base. You interrogate them right then and there in the war, and then you figure out what to do next. So this was a whole different form of commando. And the idea was that the men would be very, very strong, capable commandos and very, very intelligent count, uh, intelligence officers as well, which is also unusual. Usually commandos were, there was commandos and intelligence officers. These guys would be both. So the decision was made that they were so valuable that what they would do instead was take them in groups of two, three, four, five, and put them with other existing commando units to have them do this really crucial frontline work for the war effort. Sure, never fought as its own group. All of the men were parsed out. Also, the realization was that if they were a commando unit that fought on its own, let's say a bomb went off and they lost half the men, they were far too valuable for that. So they had to be parsed out in little groups to existing units to do counterintelligence and to do commando work, to do both of them at the same time. And as the war went on, they can, they proved themselves more and more valuable and they these men became just so important to the war effort and and different units were fighting to get some of these members of X troop uh, within within their group. And what kind of training did these men have? Because as you mentioned, they were very highly cultured often. They had this this kind of useful German language skills, but they weren't necessarily all soldierly at that point. So how were they shaped into commandos? So they were they were not soldierly at all. I mean, one of them said how strange it was that he went, you know, a guy who loved to read books and paint and then could, you know, put together a gun with his with a bandana over his eyes, not seeing it. Um, so what happened was all the whole ex troop was taken to Wales, to Aberdovey, Wales, and it was led by a Welsh man named Brian Hilton Jones. He was the head of the ex troop. He wasn't Jewish, he was an important commando officer. And they spent a year to two years in Wales doing intense commando training. They learned everything. They learned how to sneak into bases after dark and get things. They learned how to hide in plain sight. They learned all the types of guns they had to use. They learned in in the deepest way possible every aspect of the German military as well. Um, so they went to what, through one to two years of chain, training in Wales, which was quite a culture shock for all of these young sort of cultured men to find themselves live and because they were commandos they didn't live on a base they were given money to go find a welsh family to live with so they all went and live in these welsh homes ate welsh food had to pretend not to be german um and get to know the locals and in the end, the locals seemed to have loved them. I, I had a lot of interviews with Welsh locals who talked about how uh, polite these young men were compared to other commandos. But it was really shocking because they were also all having fake names that they had to remember. They were all told to burn everything that had to do with their past. So they were these, you know, this invented commando figures in Wales at the same time that they were doing very advanced commando and intelligence training as well. So, And that went for about a year to two years where they just learned everything possible. They trained with Lord Lovett. They trained with all the top figures. And then finally, the first group was chosen to do the Italian campaign and landed right in the front votes at Sicily, these ex-troopers. And then the second group went for D-Day. And then they were in all the theaters of the war. 
So they, they start seeing action really from 1943 and then essentially serve for the, the last two years of the war. Yeah, to the last days, to the very final days. They were always at the forefront. They were at the front of the crossing of the Rhine. They were, you know, they landed all over the beaches uh, uh, on D-Day. They were always sent to the front because, because what they could do was so crucial and unusual. It was so unusual that you had somebody could capture and interrogate Germans on the battlefield. And then, because they were so highly trained, then make commando decisions at that moment what to do in the next few minutes. And that's what, I mean, they were crucial for a number of reasons, but particularly for that, for that part of the war effort. And they were all at the same time. I mean, what's so extraordinary about their stories when I interviewed them or interviewed their kids, at the same time, these men knew that every day they're fighting, their families and friends are being murdered by the Nazis. So they all knew the clock was ticking for them. And they were, of course, pretending to be British and, and, and dealing with this knowledge of what was happening to their families at the same time. And clearly they must have harboured an intense hatred for the Nazis and presumably any enemy soldiers that they encountered. But I mean, actually what's interesting that comes out of your book is they didn't then act out revenge on soldiers. For example, it seems they treated prisoners of war quite decently and actually behaved in quite a different way to how you see people in, say, the Inglorious Bastards film. So was that about just trying to show that they were above the brutality of the enemy? That is such a great point. Actually, one of the men I focus on is Peter Masters, who became this really important artist after the war. And his daughter is a reporter for The Hollywood Reporter. And she wrote an article some years ago and it said, my father was the real Inglorious Bastards. And what happened with a lot of the ex-troopers is they were furious at the, I, the vision of the Inglorious Bastards as these Jews bent on revenge and not following the rules of war. Because as my book talks about, whenever they were given an ethical decision about how to treat somebody who had hurt them um, personally, they always did the right thing. One of the men, Colin Anson, who I focus on, Right before the war started, his dad was taken away and taken to Dachau, where he was killed within a matter of days. And he loved his dad more than anything on this earth. He loved his dad. He ends up being an ex-trooper. He fights in the war in Italy. He's extremely brave. The war ends. He goes back. All of them were sent as part of the denazification campaign. So they also helped capture Nazis after the war. He's sent back to Germany and he goes to the police station. He finds out the person who who sent his dad to Dachau. And he says in one of his interviews that he, he knew he could have taken the guy, because he was working for the British government uh, on the denazification efforts. He could have taken the guy and taken him to the woods and shot him. But he didn't, because he knew that's not how you act and that's not what you do. And instead, he had the person arrested. And this happened over and over again. I, one of the men actually interviewed one of the... Um, Nazis who had killed his own mother. And he said afterwards he went and got drunk for a week, but he didn't mistreat him. My sense is that they came from such sort of like high ethical standards that they were going to follow the rules of war no matter what, even if this was personal. And for every single one of them, this was personal. The one thing you've talked about a lot already is, is this idea of creating these British identities. But, you, you know, as as we know, it's often easy to spot someone whose accent isn't quite right, even however long they've lived in a country. So did these identities hold up under interrogation when they were captured? Oh, that's okay. So just two comments on that. One is 
that when they interviewed the Welsh villagers after the war, one of them said, one of our famous things to say about the ex-troopers was they always said, we are English. So all the Welsh people knew something was a bit suspect here because they all had these, you know, they were trying to hide it and they had these heavy accents. In one of the stories, though, um, one of the greatest of the commandos, George Lane, who at that point was married to Miriam Rothschild of the Rothschilds, and Miriam Rothschild at this point was working for the Enigma campaign. Um, and so she's her own other story. So George Lane is married to her. He is sent in the days before D-Day to go try and figure out what kind of bombs the Germans are using so that when the men land at D-Day, they will be okay. So he goes out on a on a boat as part of this top secret mission. He goes twice. The third time he goes and he's captured by the Germans. He, he and another uh, officer are, are captured. They bring him to a castle. And it turns out that in one of the most extraordinary scenes in the book, Rommel himself comes to interrogate George Lane. And this is all verified. Rommel wrote a letter about it. It happened. And when George Lane was in the room with Rommel, he thinks to himself, oh my God, he's going to figure out I'm not who I'm pretending to be, that I'm not really British. So he makes the decision that what he'll do when he speaks with Rommel through the interpreter, because of course he's fluent in German, but he can't let them know, is he's going to put on a fake Welsh accent. And the Welsh accent hopefully will cover up the German accent and they won't suspect it. And it worked. So he did this accent, this Welsh accent. And afterwards, Rommel wrote that in a letter, I met this very interesting, you know, Welsh man today. Um, I think I think oftentimes the heads of the different commando units where they were sent knew something was up and didn't question it or challenge it. We do know some ex-troopers went missing and were never heard from again. And perhaps you know, it broke. But I also know of others who were captured and served as uh, prisoners of war, especially two of them who were captured at Dieppe, who through the years that they were in horrific German prisoner of war camps, they never let them know who they really were. And we, ha I have this information that came out after the war that they sort of, they kept this stance that they were these British people right through the end, even under torture. So they managed to somehow uh, do this. And this this part of why I was so lucky to get to write this extraordinary book was it remained secret until recently. I mean, it, it, they, they, they didn't talk, many of them didn't talk about it. Um, it was only in the deep archival digs that I could find the true story for many of them. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And he's gotten new letters um, from the Red Cross saying that his parents are now in terrorism concentration camp in Czechoslovakia. And the war hasn't ended. And he thinks to himself, I cannot wait any longer. They're, they haven't let me go rescue them, but they're going to have to do it now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. These men almost universally served with incredible bravery and very effectively on the front line. But were there any instances where ex-troopers actually changed the course of a battle or even a campaign? Um, there were actually multiple instances of that. So George Lane's information, they, literally he found the information that allowed D-Day to go forth. They were thinking of holding off D-Day because there was reports that the Germans had this new type of underwater bomb that could go off and that they might have to hold it off. He went and he found out what it really was. So D-Day actually went, and, and he was cited after the war. He got a he, he got a citation saying it, it was due to the efforts of Lane that we could have we could do D-Day. And this happened over and over again. During the Normandy landings, a group of the ex-troopers were put with the bicycle troop. And the idea with the bicycle troop was that they... They would ride their bikes, these awful, clunky, heavy, strange bikes, ahead of the landings to get to Pegasus Bridge to help um, the the men who had taken Pegasus Bridge. They were the first ones there. Peter Masters and the ex-troopers on their bike troops with their bicycle troops were the first ones at uh, Pegasus Bridge to help them um, hold the bridge. When they went to, to the Rhine crossing, it was uh, it was members of the X troop who led the way and fought so successfully. And they were also really important because there's the all of these sort of famous figures of World War II and, and sort of the British consciousness, like Lord Lovett. Well, Lord Lovett um, oversaw a number of the ex-troopers after the Normandy landings. And it was actually two ex-troopers who ended up saving his life because a bomb went off and he got hit by artillery fire. And two ex-troopers went out and carried his body to safety. And he said after the war, these men had saved my life. Wherever they were, I I feel very strongly that they had played very crucial roles. And same within the Sicily campaign, too. They were on the first boats that landed at the Sicily campaign. Now, many of these ex-troopers were serving on the front line and they suffered quite high casualty rates. And yes. then I suppose they must have been buried as Christian British soldiers. Uh, was that ever changed later on during the war or do they remain buried as Christians? So that's part of the sort of interesting, the legacy of the ex-trooper. One thing just to say here about writing this book is the ex-trooper story is actually incredibly optimistic and positive. Um, the men I focus on all lived lived, all survived, all had families. So, um, because obviously I can't focus on those who passed away, but I tell their stories as well. They were buried under crosses uh, in different cemeteries throughout um, 
throughout the different battles. After the war, some of the ex-troopers decided that this they needed to be buried under uh, Stars of David and that they had to sort of have a Jewish burial. And also members of different sort of Jewish war veteran leagues wanted this to be very important that they were moved from crosses to Stars of David. But this was this was contentious for some of the families because many of the the, the ex-troopers, their families had converted to Christianity when the Nazis came to power. Many of them were not even raised as Jews, even though their parents were Jewish and would, were killed because they were Jewish. So there was a very complicated relationship to Judaism. So a number of the crosses turned to Stars of David. A number of them remained as crosses if that's what the families desired. And I have to say, it's still very contentious. Um, there's a memorial to the ex-troop in Aberdovi or Aberdyfe, Wales. And when it was put up, it was put up by commanders of the ex-troop. And they, the majority of them made a the decision not to put the word Jewish on the memorial. A number of them opposed that and said, look, we're like 95% Jewish, and, and this is crucial to how we fought the war. Um, but in the end, the word Jewish is not on, on the memorial. And there's still families of ex-troopers fighting to try and get Jewish back on the memorial. I had an email from the town council there from just a few weeks ago saying, we're not going to do it, we're not going to change it. I mean, I hope that they reconsider that, but it's still, I've, I've talked to one family, two sons in that family, one feels very strongly they want the word Jewish still on the memorial, and one doesn't. So it's still, it's still very raw wounds about the story as well. And you mentioned earlier about how many of these ex-troopers, their own families were suffering, dying under Nazi occupation at this time. And I think perhaps the most astonishing story in this book concerns Manfred Gans um, and his attempt to reach his family. I wonder if you could tell us what happened there. Uh, so, you know, I write books on World War II. I'd heard for years this rumor that there was a Jew who went to a concentration camp and got their parents out of the concentration camp. But, you know, I thought this was just one of those gazillion stories we hear of hope about the Holocaust, most of which don't turn out to be true. So I start writing this book and I, I tell the whole troop story, but I focus in particular on three of the men. One of them is Manfred Gans, who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family, very, very loving family in Germany. And so his parents send him away, as happens. And once he starts, you know, serving with the ex-troop, he becomes one of their most fearless supermen. I mean, I, the war diaries, which were the diaries written not by the ex-troopers, but the actual war diaries, wrote about Manfred Gans, who was under the pseudonym of this point of Freddie Gray, and said, like, this guy is totally unkillable. Like, he was completely heroic from the get-go. And so he serves as an ex-trooper, and he receives word first that his parents, who were in hiding, have been taken to uh, Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And he makes a decision, look, I'm going to win this war, and then I'm going to get my parents. And so, you know, of course, everyone's thinking that, so sure, sure you're going to do that. And then what happens is he, 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 he's in the front of all these battles, he's totally heroic, does crazy, brave things, and the war is nearly over. And he's gotten new letters um, from the Red Cross saying that his parents are now in Terrorism concentration camp in Czechoslovakia. And the war hasn't ended. And he thinks to himself, I cannot wait any longer. They're, they haven't let me go rescue them, but they're going to have to do it now. So he goes to his leader in his commando unit, 
And Manford has been so heroic so far that the guy's like, okay, I'm going to give you a Jeep. I'm going to give you a driver. Best of luck, buddy. And the war's not over. So he takes the Jeep and he drives through Germany. He drives across the Russian lines. He has this insane experience trying to get just Czechoslovakia because he is determined that this is something he's going to do. He gets to the concentration camp, which is extraordinary. I mean, he he often went through these towns where, where there were Germans walking around saying, is the war over? He ran into Russians, has this crazy apocalyptic journey, gets to terrorism concentration camp. And this is like, this is the, the total tough guy. And he says, as he looks at the gates, he felt what he used to feel when he would jump off, do parachute jumpings, because they were all trained in parachute jumpings. He just felt everything inside of him fall and felt fear. And he hadn't allowed himself to feel any fear for years. He goes into the camp and it's the worst hellscape imaginable. I mean, typhus is hit, dead and dying Jews are everywhere. They surround the Jeep. They drive through. The Russians who have just arrived at the camp hours ago I think are so shocked to see this British officer, they let him in. And he says he starts to hear these voices and it's the sound of Jews, his world. He was Orthodox before the war. He finds a central administration office and the, the Germans' constant sickness, they of course keep track of everything. He goes into this office, there's a Jewish woman standing there. And he says, I'm trying to find my parents. And he says their name, and the woman bursts into tears when she looks through the books, and she said, they're here. So she takes him in the Jeep. They drive through this utter hellscape of dead and dying Jews. They get to the section of the camp, and he says to her, you know, you're going to have to warn them first what's coming, because I think it might kill them to just have me show up. And so she goes inside, and then she comes back to him. And by the way, in the book... Um, I have it because he kept a diary of the entire thing because he knew how important this was, what he was doing. She comes back outside and she said, they're inside and they're waiting for you. And then he goes inside and I and I actually cut and paste from the diary what happened because it was, it was just so emotional, as you can only imagine. His dad was near death, starvation. His, they'd only managed to survive because she luckily got a job in one of the kitchens and stole potatoes. They were living on a slice of bread a day. And he goes in and it was just the most extraordinary thing I'd ever read about the Holocaust. And later, apparently, their parents said to one of their other children, we knew he, if anyone would come back, it would be Manfred. He would be the one who did it. So he spent the night with them. The news spread and all of the sort of Jews who were still alive came to look and see, to know that actually some Jews had survived the Holocaust. There were still children who were alive. Their child had lived. Now the war has officially ended, by the way, while he's doing this journey. They shut the doors of the camp and the Russian commander says he's not allowed to take his parents out because A, they're far too sick to be moved and B, um, because there's an epidemic in the camp. So he spends a night with them. He gives them all this food that he's brought, cigarettes to trade. He drives immediately back to uh, the Allied sides, and he goes to the head of um, sort of this refugee thing. And within days, his parents and all the others who are in their group are taken out of the camp, and they reunite. 
and his parents live a long, beautiful life. Um, and he, he rescued them. He rescued his parents from the concentration camp by sheer will and determination and luck, I would say. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible story. And, and was this actually quite a big story at the time? This, this was quite well known, wasn't it, when it happened? Afterwards, he, as with all the others, after the war works in the denazification efforts, and because he's so capable, he he gets really important jobs, and he ends up becoming one of the most important interrogators of high-ranking Nazis and getting information that's going to be used for the trials of them. But as part of this work, he has to go to different sort of Jewish areas, of which there's very few. And whenever he goes to a place, people say, we heard about this. We heard that there was a British Jewish commando who rescued his parents. So the word got out about him. Um, and it, I think, I mean, his parents said even when he visited w- with them that day in the concentration camp, that just them seeing him gave them the will to live, that they would last a few more days and then they would be um, getting freedom. So the word got out. But then because this was a top secret unit, it kind of disappeared till this, I wrote this book and I, you know, the diaries at the United States Holocaust Museum and he actually wrote like an autobiography where he talks about this as well. And so now um, I got, I was just so lucky I got to tell this story again, that there were these Jews who fought back and that they did remarkable things as well as this story. And like him, quite a few of the ex-troopers actually had very interesting post-war lives, didn't they? Yes, they did. Um, you know, I often wondered to myself, why did the majority of them keep their British names and keep their British personas? And I, and I realized after, you know, working on this for the last few years that they became adults during the ex-troop journey. So it was when they took on those fake British personas and they took on those names, that's actually was their moments of becoming adults. So that's really who they became in many senses. So as I said, the majority of them kept their British names and their British personas, particularly those who stayed in the UK. Those who went to America, though, often would switch their names back to their original names and were much more, I guess, comfortable with reclaiming their Jewishness. And then they went on to have these extraordinary careers. Peter Masters, the one I talked about, um, whose whose daughter wrote the thing about Inglorious Bastards, he went to be this really important designer in Washington, D.C. He designed the um, Profiles in Poverty, I think it was, exhibits for D.C. He worked to desegregate neighborhoods. They were all politically active people. Manfred Gans, the one who rescued his own parents, went to MIT, did chemistry, started his own company where he sort of developed all these different chemistry patents. They were all the leaders of industry and whatever they took on, I think. And one of them, Paul Streeton, who I write about, became this very famous economist after the war. He was an economist at Oxford, then he became an economist at BU. And before he passed away, I interviewed him. And I asked him, like, what was the impact of X-Troop on him? And one of the things he said about X-Troop was it taught him to be very strong and very courageous. But he also said it taught him to be very decent and very good and very kind. And that's actually what I see with what all of them did with their lives, which was balancing this extraordinary strength and capability with a notion that they needed to, I guess, give back or do good in the world. And, and they did that. I mean, during the denazification campaign, they did that. They, they routed out Nazis and they helped 
you know, figure out who the bad people had been. But after the war, too, their careers are, are all sort of full of this kind of uh, life choice. And what was the experience like for you of meeting surviving ex-troopers and also their families? Writing this book, honestly, I think I have written four other books. Nothing was like it for me but writing this book. It was so fulfilling and so fun and so moving. It was before the lockdown, I was able to interview tons of family members. And they were so generous with what had happened to their families, about their grandparents who'd been killed you know, in the concentration camps. And um, I got, I kept getting the sense when I met with them that there were all these families just waiting for somebody to tell the story. And so when I was lucky enough to come and talk with them, they just poured out these stories of their dads. And the love that they had for their dads was like nothing I'd ever experienced before and how much they missed their dads and how heroic their dads had been to them. And then when I got to interview the actual commandos themselves, there were two alive when I wrote the book. Um, One of them I've had to use as a pseudonym throughout the book. He never told anyone he was Jewish or German and he he didn't, he didn't go there with people and he didn't want to talk about it. I think I'm actually the first person he ever really talked about it with. And I flew out to his home and it was filled with art and music and paintings and sculptures. And that's what I would find in these families, art, music, literature. And I got to spend a day just talking with him about the experience and, um, and feeling just this utter sense of generosity from the families that they were sharing this. I'm like, I'm a Jewish female American outsider coming into their families, asking them these stories and to a person, every single one of them. And the, you know, they have photographs to show me and diaries, which was extraordinary getting the diaries to share. And so for me, because I was doing so much deep dive archival research at Q, you know, going through every single war diary and making sure whenever I had like an anecdote from the family, I could match it with historical proof. So it was the glorious part was not only going into the war diaries and seeing the information there matching what the family was saying, but having the families tell me firsthand sort of what they knew about their dads. And many of them knew very little about their dads. So Uh, this book is going to fill in a lot of pieces for them, I think. Um, Okay, Leah, I think I've kind of asked you everything I was hoping to. Is there anything really important we should have talked about that I didn't bring up yet? I just want to say again that what I learned from writing this book is how important refugees are for changing our landscapes and how important it is when we let other communities come into our countries, because they are the people, at least in my experience, who can radically change the world for the better. And this group of refugees were outcasts, they were despised, they had been interned, no one had their back. And what did they do? They went to this country and they helped turn the tide for the British war effort. I keep thinking, how is this story relevant now? And the way it's relevant for me now is that I think this is what refugees do. This is what immigrants do. This is a story of the profound importance in my mind of immigration and people coming in and making the the landscape they come to better, which is what these guys did. That was Leah Garrett. Ex-Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos Who Helped Defeat the Nazis, has just been published by Chatto and Windus. You can find a link in the episode description. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt 
Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.